Today, as in the ancient era, the church is confronted by a host of life stories that contradict and compete with the gospel. The book of Colossians demonstrates the supremacy of Christ in all of life and reminds us that he has secured redemption for creation of which his people are a part. You're listening to a sermon series on the book of Colossians by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. We are entering week three of a four-part mini-series here looking at normal Christian mission. So far we've covered two of the aspects, the power of the mission, the partnership of the mission. Today we're going to look at the purpose of of the mission, but in doing so, I think we need to draw a distinction between two aspects of the mission that we are on as believers, and that would be the difference between our big picture, long-term purpose in the mission, as well as our short-term, practical, everyday purpose in the mission. And as I thought through that this week and thinking how to best explain this to you, I thought it would probably be easiest and best to do so with an illustration. Sometime in the next three to four weeks, I'm going to be making a trip to probably my favorite store in the whole world. And and sometimes you hear people say that and they're being a bit, um, using a bit of hyperbole when they do that. For me, no, I really do love this store. I walk around and just go up and down every single aisle looking at everything when I go there. That is, of course, Home Depot. Not that I'm very handy, no jokes about the finger incident, but no, not that I'm very handy or anything, but I do like the store. Well, I'm going to be going there in a few weeks to buy the materials needed to build one or two more raised garden planters for Jamie's vegetable garden. About three years ago, we started planting vegetables, and we started with just a small plot in the corner of our garden, in the corner of our backyard, excuse me, we planted three vegetables that year. We planted tomatoes, cucumbers, and bell peppers. The bell peppers did nothing. Uh, we had a bumper crop of cucumbers. They were, we had so many, we were just giving them away, trying to throw them away. They were a lot. And we got a pretty decent amount of tomatoes. We enjoyed it so much that the next year, two years ago, we expanded into a second part of our yard. And we planted a few more plants. But that year, we had just an absolutely horrible, horrible crop. Had hardly any cucumbers, okay tomatoes, but not very much, and pretty much nothing else came out of the garden. And in trying to determine what went wrong that year with our garden, I, I came to the conclusion that part of the issue was that we have very poor drainage in our backyard. Our yard is not well graded, and so water tends to pool in certain parts, and it had pooled around where the garden was, and it just couldn't grow. And so in an effort to correct that problem, to fix that, I decided I was going to build some raised garden beds for Jamie to plant in. And so last year, I did that. I built a 4-foot by 9-foot, 12-inch tall raised garden bed. We put enough mulch in it that it would keep some moisture so that the plants would have something to grow in. But having it raised, of course, solved the moisture problem. And you know what? It worked great. We didn't get a lot of cucumbers again for some reason, but our tomatoes were good and everything else worked fine. And so this year I want to build some more of those so we have more garden space. So on a short-term, practical level, my purpose in building these planters is to expand our garden to give us more of this well-drained garden space that I think we need. However, in building this bed, there is also a long-term, big-picture purpose as well. Last spring, Jamie and I took part of an afternoon, and we got a tape measure out and two cans of spray paint, which just spells trouble, just so you know. But we got these out, and we went around our backyard, and we spray-painted our entire yard in the grass. And what we tried to do was lay out in the yard everything that we would like to do in our backyard over the next several years. Um, You need to understand something about me, though, to understand and appreciate that story. When I dream about home projects and yard projects, I tend to dream big, which is just a nice way of saying I'm normally unrealistic in what it is that I would like to do in my house. So we had sprayed all this out so we could walk around and look at it. And when we got done, the place where I ended up putting the planter was chosen specifically because it fit into that long-term, big-picture, wild-eyed dream that I have for our backyard someday and what I wanted to look at. And so in building that planter, I had two purposes going at the same time. On the short-term practical level, I just wanted some well-drained garden space. That's it. But on the long-term, big-picture level... 
I wanted this thing to sit in a particular place and look a particular way and be painted a particular color so that it would fit the overall purpose of what we're trying to do. In a similar sense, as we think through the mission that we as normal Christians find ourselves on, I think we need to draw some similar distinctions in how we understand the purpose of that mission. You see, up to this point, all I've really been focused on is that big picture, long-term purpose of the mission that we're on. It's what I read to you from Titus chapter 2 a few weeks ago, that God's big picture purpose is to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And because that is God's purpose... Our purpose in ministry is to minister with all of the energy that God gives us to present everyone perfect in Jesus Christ. That's Colossians 1, 28 and 29. But the problem when I think of the mission that way, and if I only think of the purpose of the mission that way, is that is completely overwhelming. As we have already recognized, there is no way that we as people, we even as a church, can possibly present people perfect in Jesus Christ. There is no way that we can redeem anyone from lawlessness, that we can purify anyone from their their evil deeds, that we can give God the people that he is attempting to draw to himself. That's something he has to do. And so when we keep that purpose alone in our minds, it can seem a bit overwhelming. Well, if that is the case, may I suggest to you that we can draw a distinction between that big picture, long-term purpose that God has and that we should have as well and the short-term, practical, everyday purpose that we can have in ministry. These two purposes are not contradictory. In fact, they are complementary to one another. The short-term purpose allows us to fulfill the long-term purpose. And you see a wonderful explanation of what this short-term purpose is when you look at verses 3 and 4 here in Colossians chapter 4. Now let's read the whole passage, Colossians 4, 2 through 6, and then we'll pray and we'll jump into the text to see what this practical purpose is. Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Dear Father, we come again to this topic of this mission that you have put us on. And we have recognized, Lord, that the mission is far too great for us. There is no way that we, humanly speaking, can make anyone look like Jesus Christ. We can't make them stop sinning. We can't make them embrace righteousness. We can't make them turn from their sins, accept you as Savior. We can do none of these things. And yet, this is our goal. This is the purpose for which you have placed us in this world. And so, Lord, when we stop and we think about that, we are rightly overwhelmed. We are forced to our knees to be constantly and humbly seeking your help. Because we know, Lord, that you are the only one who can do it. But as we saw last week, you have chosen to work through us to bring about this mission. You have chosen to partner with us and use us as tools in your hands to make people like Jesus Christ, to redeem this people for yourself. And so, Lord, this morning we simply come trying to understand how we do that. How do we practically on a day-to-day level carry out this humongous, overwhelming purpose that you have for us? Lord, we thank you that you do not leave us without an answer. We thank you for your word, that it is powerful and able to explain these things to us so that we can be faithful ministers of you. And so this morning, Lord, I pray that you will speak through your word to your people. May your spirit be alive in each and every heart, convicting, encouraging, helping us to see what it is that we need to be doing on a day-to-day basis as we try to live our lives in accordance with your mission. In Jesus' name, amen. Today is one of those sermons where the majority of the message is going to be application. 
And the reason for that is quite simply because this text is so clear and so direct that it almost needs no development at all. In fact, really all I'm going to do with you is just clarify or highlight two concepts for you here in the text, here in verses 3 and 4. I want to make sure you understand them. And then once you do, we're going to spend the rest of our time trying to understand how to do what it is that we see we have to do. And so let's simply begin by understanding Paul's practical purpose in ministry. In verses 3 and 4, Paul says, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Now, obviously, we looked at verse 3 last week as we examined the partnership of the mission. We talked about how we need to partner with one another through prayer and through personal involvement. We talked about how we're given the opportunity to partner with God in both the message and means of the mission. But there was more here in verse 3 than just those truths. In verses 3 and 4, Paul lays out his practical, everyday ministry purpose, what it was for him to do every day as he was on this mission of making all men perfect in Jesus Christ. And here it is. It was to declare the mystery of Christ and to make it clear. That's his everyday practical purpose. He wants to declare the mystery of Christ and make it clear. Now, as I said, there are two ideas here in these verses that we need to highlight. The first is the word declare in verse 3. Underline that word. It's very important. You know what it means, a very complicated uh, definition? It means to speak, to say. It means to verbalize something. That's the first thing you need to understand. Here's the second thing that you need to understand from these verses. It comes there in verse 4 as Paul further explains what it means to declare this mystery. He says that he wants to make it clear. The verb there for make it clear means to make something visible to reveal something, to uncover it so that it can be clearly and fully known by all. And so when I take these two concepts and I put them together in relation to what Paul is doing on a practical, everyday level, Paul's purpose and our purpose as well as servants of Jesus Christ should be to declare the mystery of Christ in a clear way. Is is that easy enough to understand? Let me say it a couple of different ways for you just to make sure that you get it. My goal is not simply to hand someone a track or a piece of gospel literature and then run away. My goal is to speak words, to declare, to verbalize truth, to make the gospel clear to them. My goal is not simply to live a good, godly life in front of my neighbors, friends, family, and co-workers so that hopefully, maybe, someday, just maybe, they might ask why I live my life differently. My goal is to articulate truths to them about who Jesus Christ is and why they need him. And this explanation that I'm supposed to be giving, it should clearly reveal Christ to them. It should completely uncover the glorious truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that when they look at it, they can see him for who he really is. This is my practical, everyday purpose as I attempt to fulfill the mission that God has sent me on. It's not exactly the same as that big picture purpose, is it? I mean, it's a little bit different, but obviously I can't make anyone perfect in Jesus Christ unless I am declaring Jesus Christ to them. How do we accomplish that? Well, Paul's already said when he was going through his ministry purpose back in Colossians 28, 128, he says that that happens through proclaiming Christ. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we could present everyone perfect in Jesus Christ. The way he gets to that ultimate purpose, that ultimate goal, is by proclaiming Christ. God's purpose is to gather for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. But how does that happen practically on an everyday level? It happens as we go and clearly declare the mystery of Christ so that in God's grace, mercy, and love, he can draw his people to himself. And so what we see in verses 3 and 4 is that our practical, everyday purpose in the mission is simply to give a clear declaration of who Jesus Christ is. And then God takes that declaration and he fulfills his larger mission. All right, there you go. We're done. That's everything you need to understand from the text here in verses 3 and 4. I could, at this moment, close us in prayer 
and feel completely personally satisfied that I had made sure that you understood God's word. Unfortunately, I am not closing in prayer, and uh, we are not uh, quite close to being done just yet. Because the problem for us here with these verses is not one of knowledge, is it? See, we know that that's what we're supposed to be doing. We understand that we are supposed to be practically, clearly declaring with our lips the truth of the gospel to people around us. It's not a problem of knowledge that we have that's going to cause me to spend the rest of my time explaining these truths to you. The problem is not one of knowledge. The problem is one of application. The problem is is that we fail to do this. Sometimes out of fear. Sometimes out of insecurity or, or lack of understanding or knowledge or whatever else. The problem for us here is that we do not do these things. In fact, I would say that more often than not, we're much more comfortable with thinking of the mission in those big picture terms. Because when we only think of it in the big picture terms... We can comfort ourselves a little bit by recognizing that we can't do it anyway. Okay, well, I know God's purpose is to gather people for himself and to make them like Jesus Christ. I can't do that. God, you have to do it. I'm off the hook. Well, if that was all it was, then yes, in a sense, you would be right. That's not all it is, though. God has given us a practical everyday purpose. God has chosen to work through us as the means for carrying out his purpose. And so on an everyday level, at work, at home, in your neighborhood, with your friends and family, you've got something to do. You've got things to do, and what you need to do is to be declaring clearly Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so what I would like to do for the rest of our time now is ask and answer three practical questions that come out of the text. And I'm really trying to make these questions as practical as possible because I want you to be able to take this truth, this understanding, this purpose, and do it to to make it real in your life. Here's question number one. How do we clearly declare the mystery of Christ? How do you do that? I would imagine that if I went around the room and asked you all individually, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, to explain the gospel to me, you would be able to do it in some sense, okay? Whether very well or maybe poorly, you have some concept of what the gospel is, okay? But the fact of the matter is is that oftentimes when we're at the moment where we're trying to declare it to someone, we, we feel that we're not clear, maybe because we're not, We feel that we we don't know how to put it together the right way. And so what I want to do this morning is just to give you a brief help in trying to clearly proclaim the gospel to people whenever you have the opportunity to do it. How do we do it? Well, here in this passage, Paul lists two ways that we declare the mystery of Christ to people. First and foremost, this is like 90% of the effort right here. First and foremost, we should clearly declare the mystery of Christ with our words. With our words. As as I just said a moment ago, it is not simply enough to live a good life in front of people and hope that they will ask you for a reason of the hope that is in you. That will happen, yes, and I'll talk about your life in a moment. More next week, we'll only mention it for a second today. That will happen, but what we need to be doing is to be actively speaking the gospel to those around us. And the reason why we need to be actively proclaiming this message, actively speaking the gospel, is because it is the word of the gospel that is powerful. That is why Paul prays here in verse 3 that God will open a door for the word. It's because Paul understands that the word is powerful, not him. If the power was in Paul, if, if the ability to, to convince people of truth and to save them and change them was resident in Paul, then his request in verse 3 would have been, Dear God, please open to me a door. I'm in prison. I need to get out. Right now the mission is, is faltering because I'm here and I can't work my wonders in the world. Please let me out so I can get back to work. But Paul understands that the power is not in him. He understands that the power is in the spoken word of the gospel. That that is what needs to be set free in the world. And his power and his prayer, excuse me, reflects that understanding. Now, on the practical level, how do you do that? 
How do you speak the gospel to people in such a way that you can clearly unleash the gospel power on them? Well, though this explanation is overused, I admit that up front, the truth of the matter is is that the answer does lie in the word gospel itself. You know what the word gospel means, right? It means good news. Okay, It's a message that brings joy to people. It is a message that people think or feel, understand to be good. But the word itself assumes something. It assumes that people understand the bad news connected to it. It assumes that people understand the problem that the gospel of Jesus Christ is supposed to solve. To illustrate, imagine just for a moment that someone ran up to you after the service, all out of breath, clearly clearly disheveled, something's wrong, and they said, here, take the pill now, do it quick. You, you all know what your response would be. You would look at them, you would look at the pill, and you'd say, no, thank you, I'm just fine, keep your drugs to yourself. You might call the police on them or something like that. But imagine if the situation went more like this. Listen, everyone in the building today was exposed to a poisonous gas. In the next 24 hours, you're going to be dead. I went to the hospital, I got the antidote, here's the pill, take it quick. Now, assuming you believe the person, assuming they're trustworthy and you know that what they said is true, now you have a reason for taking the pill. Now, taking that medicine makes sense. Well, in a similar way, this is how many people declare the gospel to their friends and family. Well, Jesus, Jesus loves you, and he does. Jesus died for sins, and he did. You, you need to repent and accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, and they do. But they hear all that truth, they listen to your proclamation, and what do they say to you? That's nice, no thank you. You're no different at that moment, I'm not trying to pick on you too much here, but you're no different at that moment than the guy who just runs up and says, here, take the pill now. Because they don't have any understanding of why they need to take the pill. From their perspective, they're fine. They're good. Why do I need Jesus? Why do I need a Savior? In fact, did you know it is even possible to embolden someone in their rejection of Christ by simply preaching half the gospel to them? I mean, think about that for a moment. If they already think they're a good person, if they already think that they're right with God, and you come along and say, Jesus loved you and he died for you, and if you put your faith in him, you're going to be fine. He'll take you to heaven. They're going to think, well, I'm already good anyway, so if Jesus loved me before, he's got to really love me now. Now I'm, now I'm extra good. and I, I, he, he died for me, so whatever he did is good enough. I'm a good person, voila. I'm not saying that happens a lot. I'm not saying that happens all the time. I'm simply saying that when we only preach half of the gospel, we are not doing what we have been called to do. In order to clearly declare the mystery of Christ to people, we need to begin by explaining to them why they need the gospel. You need to help people see their need for the gospel. In his excellent little book, The Truth of the Cross, R.C. Sproul gives three biblical concepts that we need to help people see when we're talking with them, when we're communicating with them, or we need to be listening for in their communication so that we can jump on that and help open their eyes. I want to give those three words for you. These are three words that would define every human on this planet, which show us our need for Christ. The first word is the word debtor, D-E-B-T-O-R. We are debtors to God. In teaching his disciples how to pray, Jesus told them to say to God, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He's not talking about money there, is it? He's referring to sin as a debt against God. Later in the parable of the unforgiving servant, Matthew 18, he taught that we have an obligation to forgive other people's debts because God has forgiven us of all of our debts against him. Again, the word debt there is not a money term. He's referring to sin. And Sproul says that in order to understand the full implications of what Scripture is saying when it tells us that man incurs a debt by his sin, we have to understand the role of God as the sovereign Lord over the universe. When we speak of God's sovereignty, we are discussing his authority. The word authority has another word in it, author, because God is the author of all things. He has authority over all that he created. We are under his authority by virtue of his authorship of all things. And so he has the intrinsic and absolute right to impose obligations on us. Did you catch that? He has an intrinsic 
an absolute right to impose any obligation he wants on us because he made us. He's the author of all things, therefore God is the authority. And he says when he does so, we owe obedience to him. If we fail to perform the obligations he places on us, we incur a debt. And the reality for all of us is is that we have failed to perform the obligations that God has placed upon us many times, haven't we? God said, don't lie. (laughs) We've lied lots of times. God said, don't have any gods other than him. And yet Calvin said it correctly that our hearts are idol factories. We are constantly making more and more things that we can worship and serve in place of God. God said that the greatest commandment is to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet every single person on this planet, including everyone in this room right now, struggles regularly with loving ourselves more than our God. But but people don't have any concept of how serious this is. They think that they're not that bad, that they're basically good. And yet as God looks at us, he says that there are none righteous, no, not one. That brings up a question, doesn't it? How is it that people can look at themselves and see themselves as basically good or basically righteous, and yet God looks at us and he says there's none righteous? How is that possible? Well, obviously we have two different definitions of what righteousness means. When we look at ourselves, apparently we define righteousness as having done more good than bad or being more often good than bad in our own eyes. But that's not the biblical definition. In the scriptures, the definition of righteousness is basically equal to perfection. It means to have no blemishes in God's sight, to have no debts before him whatsoever. And so if this is the standard, God's standard of righteousness, perfection, then how many times do we have to mess up with his law to no longer be in that state? Just once. One sin. One time is enough to take us out of perfection and never allow us back in again. Ladies, if you made a cake and it was there on your table, a chocolate cake, and it was beautiful, it was perfect, and your husband comes along with a fork and he just takes a big scoop out of it, there's no fixing the cake, is there? There's no going back to the past and remaking what has been ruined. It is done. It is over. You can never go back. It's like we try to teach our children with their words. Once a word is out of your mouth, you can never take it back again. It's too late. Well, in the similar sense, when this concept of being perfect before God, one time, just one sin, one violation of his law is enough to ruin that forever. Of course, we all understand that that's not all we've done. We haven't just incurred one debt against him. We've incurred debt after debt after debt after debt. We've sinned over and over and over again. We are incapably sunk in our debts against God. We can't file bankruptcy. We can't go anywhere else. We are in desperate, desperate need of help. And therein lies the problem. This rule says, if I am responsible to be perfect and I sin even once... What must I do to be perfect again? Simply put, it is impossible. It's impossible. In God's eyes, you are either perfect or you're not. No middle ground, no gray area, nothing else to think about or wonder about. This is where you are. This is where all people are. And we need to help people see themselves in this way in need of someone to pay this debt for them. Secondly, We need to help people see themselves as enemies of God. The word enemies is here in focus now. By sinning against God, we communicate not love, affection, or devotion to our Creator. Instead, we reject Him and declare our hostility toward Him. Now, now Sproul makes a very helpful point here in talking about enmity with God. He says this, Even though we show hostility to God when we sin against Him, God never manifests enmity against us. He says he has never treated a human being in this world unjustly. He has never violated us as creatures. In short, he has kept his side of the relationship perfectly, but we have violated him. We are the ones who violate the creature-creator relationship. By our sin, we show ourselves to be enemies of God. And you say, I know that. I know that God has never wronged me. I know that God has never hurt me or done anything that was unfair to me. I understand those truths. And yet, we, we have a head knowledge on this point, 
that very often does not flow out of our mouth and through our minds when trials come. It's the difference between our, our, our head theology and our practical theology here. Because how often when things are going wrong in our lives do we immediately begin to accuse God of sorts? God, why are you letting this happen to me as if somehow he's wronged us? God, why would you allow these circumstances to come into my life? Why would you make this happen? Why would you let this person do this to me? You're accusing God at that moment. But understand, folks, God has never once done anything wrong to you. He always treats you fairly and justly. Never once has there been any injustice on the vertical level. All injustice is on the horizontal level. All injustice is on our level, man to man in this world. When it comes to God, the only injury that has ever occurred in this way is us against him. When we sin against God, when we violate his word, we are saying to him, we don't care about you. We don't want to be under your rule. I don't want you to be Lord. It's a personal insult and injury to God each and every time we sin against him. We are his enemies in that sense. So we're debtors, we're enemies. Number three, we need to help people understand themselves as criminals. As criminals. God does not give suggestions or recommendations. He gives commandments. He gives law. And I don't just mean that in the sense of Old Testament law. I know that's where your minds probably went first. Yes, he gave that law as well. He gives law today too. And Sproul says we don't, when we don't conform, we are breaking that law, which means we are committing a crime in the sight of God, but it goes in even further. Not only is God the lawgiver to us, he also acts as judge over us. So he gives the law, and then he enforces the law. This, this is who God is. And because God is a just God, something we sometimes like to recognize and other times like to ignore, but because God is a just God, he must punish sins. He must punish criminals. Look, if, if we open the newspaper tomorrow morning and it said there was a, a judge in Virginia Beach or Norfolk or Chesapeake or wherever else, who had a pattern of not punishing criminals, not meting out justice for the victims, we would all be outraged, would we not? And yet when we think about God, when people think about God, very often they're hoping that that's how he'll treat them. But he, he won't punish me. He loves me. It doesn't matter that I've, I've violated him in all these different ways, that I've, I've sinned against him. He, he's going to look past all of that out of his great love, because he's like the big celestial grandpa. That's how he's going to treat me. It's foolish. And with these same people, and you and I are guilty of this, so don't be thinking of others, but with these same people with us, we'll have that thought at one moment that God's going to just ignore what we've done wrong, and yet when someone hurts us, what's the first thing we do? Lord, they hurt me. Take care of them. Go get them. Sick them. Go, go make sure that their, their crimes are, are, are paid for. Go make sure, excuse me, that their crimes are punished. Go make sure that, that they get what's coming to them. We're, we're hypocrites. That's what we are. We are hypocrites. We want God to treat us one way differently than we want him to treat everyone else. Sproul says a just judge, a good judge, is not one who lets crime go unpunished. God is supremely a God of law and order. God not only enacts laws, he enforces his laws. Therefore, if we commit even the slightest sin, even one, we're in trouble. God is just, and his justice demands that sin be punished. And by helping people understand themselves in this way, helping people understand their sin in this way, to see it as a debt against him, as an act of enmity against him, as a crime against him, you are helping people begin to see sin as a violation of God's righteousness, which must be satisfied. You're opening their eyes to the problem to help them see that they need something to occur to fix these problems between them. Well, how can sin be satisfied? Well, now. See, it's now that you can insert the good news. 
It's now that you can insert the gospel of what Christ did for us on the cross because with each of these characterizations of sin, Christ plays a crucial role in satisfying the Father's wrath toward us. If we're thinking about sin, for example, as a debt, okay? Well, in Hebrews 7.22, guess what Christ is called? He's called our guarantor or our surety. You know what that means? That, that's an economic word. It means that he cosigns the note. It means that he's there to pay the debt that we can't pay. He's there to take care of what we could have never handled. He's our surety. He covers all the debts. He satisfies this problem between us and God. If we're talking about sin as a state of enmity, we see in passages like 2 Corinthians 5.19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That Christ came to be the mediator. The one to bring two warring parties back together and make them whole again. And if we're talking about sin as a crime, you only need to look at the cross. That's it. Look at Jesus hanging naked and bloodied from a tree. Look at the judgment that God's pouring out on him. Look at the darkness. Listen to him cry out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? If you want to understand how Christ has come in and taken your punishment, just look at the cross. Because on the cross, God poured out all his righteous anger on Jesus Christ so that those who come and put their faith in him will be saved. All the demands against us can be satisfied. Folks, this is the mystery. This is the mystery of Christ that Paul says we have to clearly declare to the people around us. It's not complicated. It's not difficult. You know the gospel story. You know the gospel truths. You just need to help people see themselves as the sinners that they are and then show them that Christ is the one who satisfies all of God's righteous demands. This is the good news we've been given to proclaim as we fulfill God's mission. That was the first thing we do to make it clear. The second thing we do to make it clear, it's not just declare it with our words, but we should declare it clearly with our lives as well. I said the other one was 90% of the work, but this one is important too. And and we're not going to really talk about this today. I just wanted to mention it. But that's what verses 5 and 6 next week are going to be about. You can can think of next week's message as as the other side of the coin to this week. So just understand that as we're declaring this message to people, you need to make sure that your life backs up what it is you're saying. We'll talk about that next time. So how do we declare it clearly? We do it with our words backed up by our lives by showing people their need for Christ and giving them the gospel. That's practically how you do it. Now question number two. Why should we clearly declare it? Why? Well, Paul answers that with just one word here in the text. He says it's because that's how you ought to speak. That's a very, very strong word in Greek. It it, it means, it refers to something that should be done as a result of compulsion. Okay, you're being compelled to do it. Whether internal as a matter of duty or external as a law, a custom, or a circumstance. It's a very strong word that tells us that Paul sees this declaration of the mystery of Christ as something that he has to do. It's not optional. He doesn't get to choose. It's not like he wakes up in the morning and says, do I want to play racquetball today or do I want to go declare the mystery of Christ? This is not the way he's approaching his calendar. Well, the truth of the matter is, is guess what? We're all obligated to do it. We all have a compulsion here. Proclaiming the gospel is not optional for us. It's not like you can just look at me and say, well, he's a pastor, he has to do it. You know, I just, I do my job and that's it. No, no, no. We are all ministers of Jesus Christ, and we all have to do it. As I've quoted for three weeks now, listen to this. The Great Commission is not just for the 11. It is the basic agenda for all true disciples of Jesus Christ. You are obligated by command to clearly declare the mystery of Christ. That is what the Great Commission is all about. Whether you want to do it or not, doesn't matter. Whether you enjoy it or not is not in question right now. You have an external command. You have Jesus saying, go make disciples of all the nations. Go. Do it. You have to get it done. This is your external compulsion. You don't have a choice. Surely, this is what you need to do. It's external, 
but you should also have an internal, oblig- or internal compulsion or obligation as well. If Christ has done so much for you, are you really sitting there thinking, I don't, I don't know Jesus. I don't really want to do this for you. You should have an internal desire to go share with others what Christ has done in your own life. You don't have to be specially trained. You, don't have to, you should just have a desire to say, I want to tell other people about it. God, give me an opportunity. Therefore, whether you want to or not, it's commanded of you. You have to do it, but hopefully you would have a desire in your heart as well. This is something we ought to do out of obedience to God. Number three, third question, what can we expect when we declare it? What's going to happen? I think that this uncertainty about what's going to happen when I go and do it does prevent us at times, maybe much of the time, from sharing Christ. Because you just don't know, and we don't like uncertainty. So what's going to happen? Well, I can tell you two things for certain that will happen. Not every time, but as you step back and you just kind of take a general look at all the times you declare Christ, two things are guaranteed. Number one, you can expect suffering. That's encouraging, isn't it? You can expect suffering. Paul prays that God will open to them a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ for which he was in prison. He's not in prison because he did anything wrong. It's not like he was saved in like a prison ministry because he killed someone and now he's, he's trying to minister in that context. That's not what he's doing at all. He is in prison for declaring the gospel. This is where he's at. This is what's happened to him. Thank you, God, for being so kind to me at this point for serving you like I have. That's not his attitude at all, is it? And just as a side note, it's interesting to me that he doesn't consider prison to be a hindrance to his ministry. He's in prison. Guess what he's doing? He's still proclaiming Christ, whether it's in letters or to the guards or to other people. I mean, it didn't stop. Just a new context. That's all that happened for him. But he is suffering now for his interaction with the gospel for preaching the gospel in a similar way you and I should expect suffering not prison necessarily who knows what form it's going to take but Jesus in John 15 he said this he says if the world hates you you know that it has hated me before it hated you if you were of the world the world would love you as its own but because you are not of the world but I chose you out of the world therefore the world hates you remember the word what I said that I said to you A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, he doesn't say how. He doesn't say to what extent or through what means. You you don't know any of those pieces. All he's guaranteeing is that for those who follow after him, for those who are his disciples, who do what he's telling them to do, you can be guaranteed that you will encounter suffering. And I know that scares you because it scares me. It's scary to think, well, What's this person going to do? What are they going to say? What if they don't like me anymore? What if they won't talk to me ever again? Those things can be intimidating. And if persecution was the only guarantee that we had in ministry, I fear my heart would not be able to carry on. But, But thankfully, it's not our only promise. It's not even the primary promise. That's because, number two, we can expect fruit. You can expect fruit from your declaration. Because I didn't finish reading Jesus' words there in John 15. I purposely stopped where I did. Because after he says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He adds this, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. See, he he lets them know that yes, you're going to have some persecution. But you're going to have some fruit also. You're going to have some people who, just like they did with me, they're going to hear the message of the gospel. and They're going to believe. They're going to be changed. I'm going to come in and I'm going to do something in their heart and you will see fruit. The other guarantee that you have is that when you clearly declare the mystery of Christ is that there will be fruit from your ministry. And Paul recognized this. Look back at Colossians 1 for a moment. Just look at verse 3. This is his prayer, what he says he's praying for them. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Paul says everywhere the gospel is going, 
every new city it enters, every new place, every new home, everywhere it's going, it is bearing fruit. It's certain. It's going to bear fruit. Everywhere it goes. Why? Because, as I said at the beginning, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all those who believe. When you speak those words, you are speaking God's power. Just like when he said, let there be light, and the power of his words caused light to be there, when you speak the gospel, this is his power, verbalized in a message. Now, you don't always know what the fruit's going to be. You you don't know what you're going to see and not see. But God has promised that his word never returns void. And so in some way, some shape, some form, you are certain, you can know with certainty that there will be fruit from your message. Paul said it to the Corinthians. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. You may never see that growth. You may never know what happens with your proclamation, but God has promised to be faithful and to build his church through the message of his gospel. Our labor is not in vain. So as we think about our purpose in the mission, we have to see it from these two different perspectives. From the big picture, long-term perspective, we're working with all of the energy that God gives us to make everyone perfect in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's, that's the big picture goal. That's what we're aiming at. But on a short-term, practical level, we're simply proclaiming Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that God, through his grace, will save some. We will persecu- uh, suffer persecution along the way, but, but we will see fruit as well as God uses us to bring about his plans for the church. One final thought with this, just an act, a, a comment of comfort, really, and then I'll be done. Aren't you glad that God doesn't expect us to be like the Apostle Paul when it comes to ministry? Because I know for me, as I, I look at this and I think about Paul and all he's doing, I can become a little discouraged because I think I'm not as brave as he is. I'm not as bold. I'm not as smart or as well-trained. I'm not as experienced. I'm not as good of a speaker. I, I don't have all the opportunities that he had to do this. If, if this is the standard of what a minister of Jesus Christ is supposed to be doing day in and day out, I fail miserably. And I never will achieve what he achieved. But remember, we haven't been called to be like Paul. We have been called to be like Jesus. And the same God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who worked through Paul to do all of these amazing things, wants to work through you and I as well. It may not be as a missionary traveling all over the world doing all these incredible things. He wants to work through you on the ship. He he wants to work through you with your family. He wants to work through you in your neighborhood. He wants to work through you at the office place. He, He wants to work through each and every one of us in unique ways, not compared to each other. He wants us to be faithful servants of his so that he can carry out the mission that he has put us for. And our place in this, our role in this purpose is not to worry about how he's using everyone and how he's going to bring it all about. Our purpose is very simply to proclaim the mystery of Christ clearly. The power of the gospel, the power of God to salvation so that God can carry out his work in the world. Let's pray. Lord, we know that we are supposed to be faithful evangelists. We know that we are supposed to be clearly declaring the mystery of Christ to those around us. But Lord, we fail at this regularly. And so this morning, Lord, I I don't think our greatest need has been to, to be convinced that we're supposed to do it. I think, Lord, we simply need to be convinced to do it. To to just get out there and and to be active in the mission. To be clearly declaring Christ. So, Lord, first of all, we pray that you will open to us a door for the word. That you will give us opportunities this week to declare the mystery of Christ to the people we interact with. I pray, Lord, that as we do that, you will give us the, the mind and the heart to be able to clearly speak to their needs, 
to help them understand themselves as debtors to you, as enemies of you, as criminals against you. That they will see their need of of a substitute, of someone to come in and satisfy these demands that you have. And then, Lord, help us to clearly declare Jesus, to clearly show them the gospel, to show them what Christ has done for us on the cross. They need to understand you, Lord, that you have come and you've co-signed the note. You've mediated between us and God. You have now taken all of our punishment and taken it on your shoulders on the cross. You have done all these things and we stand in awe and reverence of you now. Lord, please help us to declare that message with clarity to those around us. Lord, help us to obey your command to do this. But Lord, even more than that, please put a burning desire in our hearts to share Christ. It's something we ought to do, Lord. I pray that you will help us to be faithful in it. And then Lord, we pray that in every circumstance and everything that we have an opportunity to, to, to be involved in, that Lord, we won't be comparing ourselves to each other, to, to someone like Paul or any of these other things. Father, we will be just actively seeking to be used by you in each and every circumstance. Lord, you have in many ways humbled yourself by choosing to work through the church. You could sovereignly, divinely do all the work yourself and it would be perfect and you would be glorious in doing it. Yet you have chosen to take us as weak, foolish people and to put your spirit in us and put the message of the gospel, your very power on our lips. And you've chosen to use us now to go out and declare it. And so, Father, as the body of Christ, we ask that you be with us, that your spirit empower us, give us courage, give us, give us bravery, Lord. Help us to not shy away from those moments that you, that you have placed before us. Lord, we want to be faithful because we want to see more and more people look like Jesus. May that be the burning desire of our hearts, the burning desire of this church, that more and more people look like our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for your word. I pray that you will apply it now by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.